today we're going to be looking at Jesus, our King. And um, over the last few weeks, we've been doing the series Simply Jesus. And uh, we've looked at Jesus, the revolutionary, Jesus of history, Jesus, our teacher, Jesus, our healer. Um, and today's kind of the grand finale, Jesus, our King. Um, and last week was so cool. I don't know, um, for those of you who are here, we um, heard from um, Caitlin, Sam, and Dean which was so awesome. I just was so blessed by hearing from them. I love, I love hearing from people about their, their um, encounters and, and their relationship with Jesus. Um, and we learn something different about Jesus through other people, right? And that's why it puts us in community because we see different parts of Jesus through, through each other. Um, but yeah, so I mean, if you're not a believer, you've probably heard of Jesus referred to as king because at Christmas time, a lot of the songs you know, we, we sing of him as being the coming king. And as Christians, we call Jesus the king of our heart, the king of love, the king of heaven, um, the king of kings. Um, but, you know, I think that sometimes it can be easy for us, this name, King Jesus, to become just kind of a, a nicety or a, a title we give Jesus just to pay our proper respects. Um, you know what, it's different because it's not like I expect my students to call me Mrs. Phipps or how I'm, we now call Meghan Markle, Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Sussex. Um, you know, King Jesus, this is, you know, he actually is the king. He actually is the king. And I know that sounds ludicrous if, if you don't believe, but bear with me. Um, so I'd like to suggest, next slide, thank you, um, that... Jesus as king can only really be understood in the light of the whole story of Israel. So we're going to take a quick rapid fire, like real rapid fire overview of the Old Testament. Um, because I think that it's easy for us, I mean the Old Testament can be hard to read, right? So it's easy for us to, to pick our favourite stories, our classic hits, our David and Goliath, um, which is my son's favourite because his name's David, um, our you know, Jonah and the whale, our um, Joshua and the fall of Jericho, our Moses and the, the splitting of the Red Sea, you know, and we, and we of course, of course we learn and we, we, um, we see God in these stories and we have revelation of God in these stories but when it comes to having a revelation of Jesus and how his name is woven through all of history, um, it does help to get kind of an overview of, you know, right back when. So, um, so bear with me, we'll go through a rapid fire um, summary of Israel's, ancient Israel's history. So Israel began as one Hebrew family who were under captivity um, in Egypt. And essentially, they just kept on growing and kept on growing until they became a nation called Israel. And the Exodus is their story of God delivering them under dramatic circumstances from Egypt. They wandered around the wilderness then, so they, they were delivered, but then they fluffed around in the wilderness for about 40 years. And basically, in essence, they were wandering around for so long, they couldn't get to the, the land, or they couldn't find the land that God had promised them because they kept on kind of doing things their own way, okay? They kept on forgetting that God had just done this amazing miracle of delivering them from Egypt, and they kept doing things their own way. When they got to the promised land, um, there were already people living there called the Canaanites, and um, it was in the desert that God had given Israel the law, and the law was essentially a framework that allowed their society to flourish um, as a separate nation, you know, aside from 
the oppression of Egypt and aside from kind of the, the chaos of the Canaanites. So the law was, was there to protect them and to guide them. So God was to be their king. God was to, um, you know, they were his people. They were his nation. But again and again, Israel kept on kind of doing things their own way. And they kept on forgetting that God was their king and would provide for them. They kept on forgetting of God's love for them. Um, so then God sent some judges, um, a series of men and women who would lead and who would reconcile Israel back to, um, back to God and, and to remind them that they were a holy nation. Um, but then this fateful cycle continued. You know, Israel would continue to do things their own way. They would forget. Um, God would send a judge who would reconcile them and lead them back to God. And a nation would thrive for a while. And then eventually, you know, they'd just go back to the same old ways and, and forget about God. And, um, you know, you can kind of be like, just get yourself together. But, um, I mean, we can think that, but I'm pretty sure it can tell us a little bit about ourselves probably as well, eh? Um, Israelites thought, okay, you know, this, we, we know we've got a problem. Um, if we have a human king, maybe we can sort this all out. Um, so God, give us a human king. We need a, a strong, uh, physical, tangible, royal line to, to lead our nation. And so after pleading for such a king, God gave them King David, and the royal line um, from the kingdom of God was established through him. However, that same pattern of doing things their own way and rebellion and um, forgetting God kind of continued. There were, there were moments of peace under the kings, and there were moments where they, where they did do well, particularly under King Solomon. Um, but, you know, generations and generations, and they just couldn't get themselves together. They kept on forgetting. So um, then, as if things couldn't get more disheartening, we have um, there was the centuries of Israel basically being ruled or taken into exile by a series of world powers. So there were the Babylonians who basically captured Jerusalem, they decimated the royal family, they destroyed the temple, they stole heaps of treasures, and they took a bunch of the population with them into Babylon, into exile. Um, and so eventually, um, under Persian rule, a bunch of Israelites did return back to the Middle East. But then there were the Greeks, then there were the Syrians, and then there were the Romans at the time that Jesus came, who each had their turn of being the ruling power of, of the Middle East. So Israel were a nation that seemed anything but the kingdom of God. Their borders and their nationhood were vulnerable, and they kept on forgetting about God. They kept on forgetting to be faithful to their king. Nevertheless, though, God always restored them. He always redeemed them. He always heard their cries because God is always doing something to redeem us. He is always doing something to restore us. But meanwhile, for generations during the exile, there were a group of prophets, people like Isaiah, Ezekiel, who would declare God's promises over Israel. Israel, you are a holy nation. You are a set-apart people. God will not um, forsake you. God will strengthen you. He will uphold you. He will bless your descendants. You, he will rescue you. God will deal with your oppressors. Salvation is on its way. Promises that God would build Israel with precious stones and great shall be the peace of your descendants. And he's going to do this by sending a new king. God himself will come as king. God himself will come as Messiah. And this divine king will usher in a new exodus. 
So, at the end of the Old Testament, that was my nutshell Old Testament, at the end of the Old Testament, Israel are a nation in waiting. They're waiting for this king. They're waiting for God to come as king. So what does it look like when God himself comes to town and sets himself up as king of Israel? In the Old Testament, every time God reveals his glory, he does it, you know, in very dramatic ways most of the time. You know, he's not exactly predictable, is he? We have, you know, the burning bushes, the pillars of clouds and fire. We have fiery chariots. We even have quiet whispers. So Israel probably expected, you know, surely we're going to have some of that going on when God comes as king. Surely we're going to have, you know, blazing fire skies and billowing, you know, clouds and animals flocking from all corners of the globe and rainbows everywhere, you know. Surely we won't miss it. Surely that's what it's going to look like when heaven comes to earth. The prophecies say that this king will usher in a new exodus. He'll redeem us. He'll condemn our oppressors. He'll free us from our enemies. He'll take charge. Justice will be served. Peace will prevail. And this king will sort us out. He will rule over us like a good king should. Yes, God did fulfill all the prophecies. And he also broke every box and blasted every expectation that the Jews held for their coming king. So let's have a look. Who is this King Jesus guy? The first thing that we're going to look at is the idea of self-limitation. You know, Jesus was not born in an extravagant palace, but in a humble stable. He was not raised by the powerful elite, but your average family. He was not hailing from a powerful super city, but from the country hick town of Nazareth, which people thought nothing good could ever come from, let alone a king. And when he was recognized as being king of the Jews by his followers, he came to Jerusalem not galloping on a blinged-out war horse or bedazzled chariot, but on a humble donkey that he borrowed. Jesus, God incarnate, had access to everything, and yet he possessed nothing. Why? Why hide his glory? Why, why limit his splendor? Why live so humbly as one of us? And it all comes down to relationship, more than anything. God wants relationship with us. What an unusually wonderful king to not remove himself from us, but to get fully in amongst humanity, to, have, to, to feel grief, to feel joy, to have human needs, to limp along in life with us. The thing is, our King Jesus wants to partner with us. He shares his authority and he shares his inheritance. So Jesus, um, he makes us co-workers. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about that we are co-workers with Christ. That means that rather than imposing his power on us, he invites us to participate with him. And it's not about him intimidating us and freaking us out with his glory, it's not about him gathering subservient slaves. He doesn't want robots. He doesn't want pious homage. That's the kind of thing you might expect from the all-glorious king, but not our King Jesus. He makes disciples, not slaves. I mean, he used a ragtag group of homies to bring the message of his gospel through. <laughs> he taught them the ways of the kingdom. He got them to join in. He believed in them, and he used them 
to bring his kingdom to earth. He gave them the authority of his name. I mean, it's almost laughable and scandalous. What kind of king uses the humble and the uneducated to spread their kingdom? Our king, Jesus. He also shares his inheritance. It was dramatic. Um, my drink bottle. Um, he also shares in his inheritance, and, and Dean touched on this um, last week. Um, so I'm going to re- read one of the verses which he read. Because as co-heirs with Christ, we are invited to share in his inheritance, to inherit everything of heaven with him. So Galatians 4, 4 to 6 in the message says, you can tell for sure that you are now fully adopted as his own children because God sent the spirit of his son into our lives crying out, Papa, Father. Doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain that you are not a slave but a child? And if you are a child, you're also an heir with complete access to the inheritance. It's crazy. When we accept Christ, he adopts us as his own. He takes us into himself. And because we are in Christ, we sit with Christ. And where does Christ sit? At the right hand of God, far above all rule and power and dominion and authority, both in this age and in the one to come. He's invited us into this. We sit with him as adopted children, as adopted co-heirs of the real kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven. He's not hoarding his power over us. He's not hoarding his glory. He's not hoarding his kingdom. He wants us all to be redeemed and to share in this inheritance. In Ephesians 2, 6-7, I love this verse. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness of, um, to us in Christ Jesus. This is the kindness, this is the extravagant grace of God that he has invited us to sit with him as adopted children in the heavenly realms, as co-heirs. What kind of king does this? What kind of king shares their inheritance and their glory? Our king, Jesus does. And this inheritance, this belonging, by the way, has nothing to do with what you have or haven't done. It's all about what Jesus has done. It's not about you. It is, but it isn't. It's a gift through and through. It's the extravagant grace of the king that he simply wants us with him. He simply wants our relationship. So Jesus made us co-heirs and co-rulers in his kingdom. He shared his authority and he shared his inheritance. There is no king like our King Jesus. And just pause on that. Jesus is also the king of an unusual kingdom. There's no kingdom like his. Jesus spoke of his kingdom being like a tiny mustard seed, like buried treasure in a fishing net. Not exactly images of of splendor and glory, but images that we can relate to. 
in his kingdom, it's the poor, the humble, the meek, the lowly, the outcast, the peaceful, the grieving, the pure, the persecuted, and the merciful are blessed. It's not about pushing and shoving your way to the top. In his kingdom, the last are first, and the childlike are wise, and enemies are loved and forgiven, and the strong serve the weak. In his kingdom, love, not selfish ambition, reigns supreme. This is the kind of king I want to serve. In his kingdom, all things are made new. The lost are found, the deaf can hear, the blind can see, the lame can walk, the weary grow wings, the defiled are cleansed, the outcasts are included, burdens are lifted, the lowly are valued, the tormented are freed, the guilty are forgiven, despair becomes hope, and the dead come to life. This is the kind of kingdom that I want to belong to. Jesus was an unusual king of an unusual kingdom. He shared his inheritance. He shared his authority. He turned everything upside down because his greatest concern was for our human condition and our human needs, not the political condition that Israel thought. The Israelites thought they were expecting that their messianic king would lead a victorious battle against their political oppressors. He'd deliver justice, establish peace, he'd restore their nationhood, he'd make them a formidable nation again. So how is this Jesus guy supposedly king? He went around healing the lepers and the deaf and the blind. He healed the paralyzed, the bleeding. He delivered those in mental torment. He spent his time dignifying women and children. He even befriended tax men and sex workers. I mean, great, and aside from the fact that this was utterly scandalous to the Jews, but on the surface, this seemed this had nothing to do with restoring Israel. On the surface, it seemed this had nothing to do with delivering justice. Why wasn't he dealing with the crucial problems? Why wasn't he leading a revolt against the Roman Empire? Tom Wright puts it this way. There is no point putting the world right if people are still broken. There is no point putting the world right if the people are still broken. Jesus came not to bring a revolution against Rome, but to lead a revolution in our hearts. He was much more concerned with restoring peace to our hearts than peace to Israel's borders. Of course he cared about that, but at the core... Socio-political peace can't happen unless true peace reigns within us. So, what was the real enemy? Think back to that rapid-fire summary of ancient Israel. What was the problem? No matter what system or what people group governed their nation, Israel could never maintain stability and peace for long. They were at the whims of the nations around them, passed to and fro between the world powers, constantly forgetting about God's provision and his glory, momentarily having peace and and thriving, but continuing around that cycle of rebellion and redemption. The problem with their nation wasn't that they didn't have a strong enough king to lead them. They didn't need a new figurehead. They didn't need necessarily a a new fandangled system of government. 
because at its root, the problem wasn't political. The problem wasn't leadership, it wasn't the Roman enemy. The problem was much, much deeper. The real enemy was sin. That deep part of our human condition where our desires compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. It's the failure to be humans who fully love others and love God. And it's this selfish core which separates us from God and is the source of humanity's problems and the real enemy that Jesus came to destroy. Death, evil, and human sin is what underlied not just Israel's problem, but all humanity. And this is why Jesus is a king for all of us. And it was this selfish core, it was this separation from God that Jesus faced on the cross and ultimately defeated. And this brought about the new exodus, the true exodus for all humanity. The real battle then, the real battle Jesus fought was for our hearts, to reconnect us home to our creator, to show us the Father's extravagant love for us. I believe that within every person, there is this deep desire to belong. I think that's our, our deepest need, to belong, to, to have a sense of security in, in who we are and where we come from, to be deeply known and to be deeply loved. These are our fundamental needs. And if this very deep need for belonging and identity, for love, is not met in our creator, then like the Israelites, we will feel lost and vulnerable. We will feel like we're wandering around the same old scenes and the same old issues time and time again. We'll feel like we're never really hitting the mark, seduced by fake gods, momentarily having some peace, but generally at the whims of stuff and, and the environment and, and the powers that be. I guarantee you that unless you have found yourself in God, then at a deep level, that desire for belonging and identity is still haunting you. We've all been lost and disconnected from our Father, from our true home. But Jesus brings good news of the Father, not bad news. This is why I love that we sing that song, Good, Good Father, like it's been like the anthem for the last, I don't know, year or two. And I just so believe that God is, um, he re like, there's a reason why we're singing it now. There's a reason why we sing it all the time is because we really need to know it. We really need to know this truth. I think we've, we've lost our way a little bit. Um, and that's okay. But you know what? Jesus came to show that God really, really, really cares about our immediate concerns like poverty and sickness and torment and grief. And he also really, really, really cares about our immediate joys like weddings and, and food and friendships. I love that one of the things Jesus did when he um, came back to life was make breakfast for his disciples yeah. on the beach. It was cool. That's God. <laughs> to the core of who you are, Jesus wanted, the message Jesus carried was that to the core of who you are, leaving nothing unturned, you are loved by God. 
Every second of every day, every breath you take, you are loved by God. That from the beginning to the end, you are loved, 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 you are loved. God loves you, 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 God loves you. That's the good news. I always do that. Jesus made a way for us to be connected with God that you may no longer be alienated and estranged from him because of your faithful human condition. We've all got it. We all want to be home. That's our core need. That's our our core cry. Like Dean talked about last week, our core cry is, Dad! We just might not recognize it. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all our human failings. He took all that is wrong within the world upon himself. And the battle he fought was destroying everything that disconnects us from God. And when he rose from the death, he defeated the power of evil. He defeated the power of death and sin, and he defeated everything which separates us from God, and he destroyed every force that prevents us from knowing the truth. Death has lost its sting. So the real victory, the real victory that Jesus won was far beyond and much deeper than what the Israelites were expecting. I love this quote from, um, we read this book as part of the leadership course called The Insect and the Buffalo, which um, I recommend, by the way, it's written by some Kiwi guys, and it's just like the best concise um, summary of, of the Bible, essentially. So, um, and, and it really, really helped me. And so you might want to look into that book, The Insect and the Buffalo, but this quote kind of sums up the victory of Jesus so nicely. The new exodus happened as Jesus promised, but not as Israel expected. Rather than escape from exile under Roman oppression, Jesus' death offers a new exodus out of death, evil, and alienation from God. The true exile experience, not just by Israel, but all humanity. And so this is the victory of Jesus, is that we are free. The victory of his resurrection is that we can be free from shame and from guilt and from condemnation. We can be free from insecurity. We can be free from the oppression of fear. Man, fear is just like... Fear is like, it's so easy to be fearful. And I, and I think, um, you know, anxiety and, and sleeplessness and, um, and, you know, depression and like anxiety is rife, man, in our generation, eh? And it's fear at its root. I'm not immune to it at all. Those who know my story know. Um, but, you know, this is, this is what Jesus came to free us from. Um, and I'll come back to that. Um, Jesus came that we can be free from that deep sense of homelessness. The victory of Jesus' resurrection became our path back to our Father. We are welcomed home in the loving arms of our Father. 
from where we came and from where we got our name. We have a king who loves us fiercely, who fought for our souls, who won for us liberty from our human condition, a king who rescued us, who's given us a place in his kingdom as his child and his heir. And this is the good news. This is the only news. (laughs) It's under the ruling authority of our King of Kings that all things are restored. I'll come back to that. I feel like um, when we accept Christ and he takes us back to the Father and he takes us home, like the Israelites, we can get distracted, right? And we can kind of get lost. We can get lost again. And it's not like once you accept Christ um, that forever things will be great. I think we need to come back to the Father every day. We need to come back to the Father every hour. We need to... Um, like, the world we live in is just, like, mental. And um, social media, the stuff our kids are growing up in, like, oh, that's such a bombardment of crap. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I love social media, but, you know... I think that um, I just want to encourage you that we need to keep coming back to the Father. We need to keep coming back home. And we need to get our head back in heaven. We need to get our head back to where it belongs, right? We need to get our, our, we need to get our, like we can't see that we live in heavenly realms. We can't see that that's our true home, right? So it's easy to get distracted, and I feel like God wants to encourage us, like, just keep on coming, just keep on coming, just keep on coming, keep on coming. Like, yes, you'll get distracted. I'm always here. Keep on coming, keep on coming. We need to keep abiding and living in his love. Um, And this is how his kingdom comes, right? This is how the kingdom of God comes. It starts within us. As we allow his love to change us. His kingdom comes as we abide in his love. As we just sit and abide in his love and as he abides in us and as we abide in him and we just keep on coming back to the love of the Father, we keep on coming back to that he loves us. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me. We need to stay in that. And when we stay in that, The kingdom of love, the kingdom of heaven can't help but flow out of us. It's unstoppable because change happens within us, right? You know, the Israelites thought that this king was going to fix everything from like, you know, up here, but it actually starts down here, doesn't it? It actually starts within us. What Jesus did, the victory he wrought through his resurrection ripples through generations and generations and generations and generations forever and ever and ever and ever. And he uses us, his redeemed children, now whole and free and secure in the love of our Father to do this, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. It's such good news. It is such good news. It is such good news. You know, I've only just really got 
um, a new revelation of the good news. You know, growing up, you hear about the good news and you read the good news Bible and, um, and the good news, <laughs> the good news is that we're loved. <laughs> really, that's it. Um, uh, worship team, would you mind coming up um, soon? That'd be great. Um, do you know Jesus is king? Do you know him as your rescuer and your deliverer? You know, Jesus is kind. Our king is kind. He's not going to, you know, take you captive and, and rescue people that don't want rescuing. He's not forceful. He's kind. He's powerful and he's really kind. 